Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Deputy Alex Collins talks about how he found out that Christopher Dorner was in San Bernardino County. This is getting close to the point, right, when you get involved, because at some point um, they find his truck on fire in your county. Yeah, so he uh, he shot Officer Crane, uh, killing Officer Crane, who left behind a, you know, a wife and two children, and then severely wounded Tacius, and that was in the, the early morning hours uh, of February 7th. So I remember I was watching the news, and I see, uh, you know, this is all over the news, the Riverside officers, and then uh, some of the guys I knew from my department were out there uh, helping out at the scene. My brother, Ryan, had just recently got promoted from our uh, our SVD team uh, to sergeant, and he actually was stationed in Big Bear as a uh, patrol watch commander. So I called him uh, just to see what was going on. We talked to each other almost every day. Um, so I called him, and uh, he's kind of whispering on the phone, and he goes, hey, I think uh, we found Dorner's truck uh, up here in Big Bear. Welcome to Game of Crimes. Welcome back, everybody. It's always sunny in Florida, apparently, when you're the traitorous bastard. Murph is leaving me up here in cold northern Virginia, but that's okay. Welcome to Game of Crimes. I am the cold host, Morgan Wright. <laughs> and I'm the warm host looking at a sunny day outside. I've got the ceiling fan on in the little office here. Murph. You can call me Murph. It's Steve Murphy. Yeah, yeah. My partner in crime in sunny Florida fighting off the alligator. So, hey, guys, thank you for joining us. Hey, before we dive in and talk about last week's episode, just a couple things real quick. Just some quick housekeeping. Head on over to Apple. Give us those five stars or whatever platform you happen to be on. It really helps us, helps us get the exposure and helps us give the gift that is a game of crimes. And remember, this holiday season, tell one person, this is our new campaign. Tell one, share one. Tell one person, share one episode. Tell one, share one. Tell everybody about Game of Crimes. We want to be off the charts come January so we can take a vacation and I can go down to Florida and swim in Murph's <laughs> new pool. So <laughs> I'll introduce you to Big Al. He's got a buddy. He's got a little a buddy that's about a six-foot alligator. We call him Boots. He yeah, I'm thinking Boots future... and Purse and, you know, Coat. So. There you go. There you go. Come on down, brother. All right. Also, guys, head on over to our website, GameofCrimesPodcast.com, for everything, merch, uh, any event that we happen to do. We've got a mailing list. That's where we also post pictures when we have pictures. We will have pictures from this episode. We had pictures from uh, Luis Navia, Joe Piersante, the last few episodes. A lot of great stuff over there. Also follow us on this thing they call social media, at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. But Steve, 
You know where people really need to be? Where is that? Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. Oh. We are, we've got some controversial stuff. I'm just, uh, by the time this comes out, there will be a teaser episode on our latest random surprise where we give a follow-up to the shit show that is Loudoun County. Yeah. And also we talk about the legalization of marijuana, but as it impacts teens, suicide, and the uh, the, the content, the, the, the how much concentration there is on it. So we've got some adult discussions. We have right. some adult discussions over there where we actually talk about it. So you got to go over there. We've got some great stuff coming out. We've got, uh, in fact, this month, it's pretty clear that uh, we're doing Cohen Brothers Month. So, you know, they're the, those are the guys behind things like The Big Lebowski and Fargo. Uh-huh. It looks like The Big Lebowski will be the winner. We shall be reviewing The Big Lebowski and actually see if that rug actually pulls the room together. Murph, you're going to have to watch it because I can tell by your face you haven't watched it yet. You're exactly right. I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> I was looking forward to watching Fargo, but hey, we'll go with whatever everybody wants to hear. We, we go with what our patrons say. So head on over there. And if you just want to do a pause for the cause, just give us a random shout out or a random, just drop some random, you know, Cashola Dinero, just go to paypal.com and use our email, gamacrimespodcast at gmail.com or paypal.me slash gamacrimes, whatever it makes it easier for you to support the show and help us bring you more content. Now, before we talk, get into our disclaimer, talk about that. What an amazing episode. We got so much feedback on Luis Navia mm-hmm. and people, it's, it was just a masterclass in what these guys did. And, and you know, some people and, and one person actually encapsulated correctly. What a lesson in history. We're talking about Che Guevara, Raul and Fidel Castro, Meyer Lansky. I mean, these names yep. from the past. Right. And, and we just did that episode on the case of the month. Uh, I'm not sure if it's out yet on Patreon, but um, that talks about the potential indictment of Raul Castro and what really happened. By the time they hear this, it will be out. It comes out on the 20th. And so this is coming out on the 22nd, whatever, something like that, Monday. So it will be out, and you guys will be able to go to Patreon and listen to it and listen to our teaser episode. If you're not a member of Patreon, we'd love to have you guys join us as a player at one of our three levels. So make sure you do that. But now, Steve. (laughs) Hello. Before we get into our show, let me just remind everybody, this is a show about crime. We talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. We take the story seriously, but... But we never take ourselves seriously. If you think you are, let us know, because we're here to have some fun with you. We're here to help. We are from the government. We are here to help. <laughs> so bend over and cough. <laughs> Bohica, bend over. Here it comes again. So, hey, Murph, <laughs> but before we get into Game of Crimes, guess what time it is? I've got a clue. i got a feeling I know what it is. It's time for Small, Small Town Police Blotters. Hey, by the way, we did get an inquiry on our Patreon page. I'm going to throw it out here because I thought it was interesting. Uh, Mr. Walker said, hey, what do you guys – he thought we were saying salud, like S-A-L-U-D. And I said, I sent him a real quick clip. So when we say salute, it's actually a throwback to hee-haw. Yeah. And so guess what? Here's the first one. This comes from Logan Dorhut via our Game of Crimes podcast group. This comes from Joshua, Texas Police Department. Joshua, Texas, population 5,910. Salute. Salute. Okay, that's S-A-L-U-T-E. So, Steve, on November 11th, this we get recent stuff. This is not stuff from the past, like what year was it? On November 11th, 2021, at approximately 9.55 p.m., Joshua Police Sergeant Sean Fuligar received a call of a reckless driver. Okay, we get those, right? Mm-hmm. This caller stated the suspect was driving a motorcycle in and out of traffic dressed in an animal suit. Mm-hmm. Sergeant Fulgar located the suspect, and he was actually on a bicycle, not a motorcycle, and he was wearing Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer outfit. Sergeant Fulgar attempted to stop Rudolph, but he fled. 
and he was pedaling towards Sergeant Fuligar when he was able to get out of the, get off the bicycle. A fight ensued. So Rudolph was charged with fleeing with prior convictions, a state felony, and resisting arrest, a Class A misdemeanor, and transported to the Johnson County Jail. Once at the jail, Rudolph fought with the jail staff too. Rudolph's an idiot. <laughs> Holy Rudolph. cow! Rudolph the Red, Rude, Rudolph the Red. That's from the beating he got from fighting. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, was he just was he uh, was there drugs or alcohol involved? I mean, he's just getting in the Christmas spirit early. Well, uh, it, it says all it says is that he attempted to stop Rudolph, but uh, Rudolph went down a dead end street on his bicycle and turned around, and was pedaling towards Sullivan, Sergeant Fuligar. It doesn't say anything about uh, drugs or alcohol, which means. He was just most likely somebody from Florida that was lost in Texas. Uh, well, you know, he saw those flashing lights, and it was, he probably thought of Santa. What the Rudolph hell are you doing? It's not Christmas Eve right. yet. Get your ass back up to the North Pole. Now, hey, I did research on this next story because you see some of these uh, posted, and you go like, is it real? It's really real. This one comes from Brockton, Massachusetts. Okay. It comes from their police log. Um, when police told 20-year-old Alex Paulus of 25 Hunt Street, which that, that really exists, it's there. I went on Google Maps. I did all the research that a woman had identified him as one of three men who had burst into an apartment on Court Street late Saturday night and held the occupants at gunpoint. He said that was impossible. Of course, that's what they all said, right? But you know what he said to say that it was impossible? What? How could she tell it was me? I had a mask on. <laughs> There's a whole separate class of criminals out there with a big L on their forehead for losers. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Speaking of losers... And Florida's second the letter second letter in Florida is at Big L. Man beaten after catching boyfriend humping their dog. Upon Aww. discovering his boyfriend humping their dog, a Florida man was beaten and threatened with a knife by his bow, police allege. According to an arrest report, the 58-year-old victim told cops he caught John Miller, 33, engaged with the canine inside their home in Milton, Florida. Steve, population 10,523. I'm not saluting Salute. that one. No, I'm not doing it. <laughs> A city gross. outside Pensacola, Miller and the victim have been dating for approximately five years. Now, he's 58. The other dude's 33. So, you know, that's a little bit difference in age. So, uh, Well, apparently the 58-year wasn't keeping up with the 33-year-old. He had to go elsewhere. Jeez, <laughs> that is just so It's a whole new meaning to doggy style. I'm just telling oh, you, man. God. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my God. So the victim said that when he confronted Miller about the November 11th dog humping, Miller began punching him in the head and body. So Miller was subsequently located by police. He claimed that his boyfriend had attacked him in the garage with a metal rod of some kind. The attack, Miller claimed, began after he caught his boyfriend looking at boys in their underwear on Instagram. Oh, oh. I, I didn't even know that was on Instagram, and I hope I never see it on Instagram. Oh, my God. Well, folks, when you follow us on Instagram, ignore the pictures of Steve in a Speedo. He is definitely not a young boy in underwear. And let me tell you, I agree with that 100%. Don't be looking at that. <laughs> hey, so now, what year was it? Yeah. yeah let's go see ahead. If you, you're going to go three for 21 on this one. I just go ahead. You. Let's see. This comes from the Ottawa Citizen from our good neighbors. Hey, Steve Matelski, North in Canada, Pam Barnum, eh? So the Ottawa Citizen, Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. This comes to us from October 21st. You have to figure out what year. The headline is, Mayor says false stories spread on police search. An organized telephone campaign has been spreading false stories about the police search of City Hall files. Some weeks ago, Mayor Witten charged last night at the meeting of the City Council. The mayor reiterated her stand that any public statement on the search she ordered should come after a private conference with the Border Control. They said this was all done to embarrass the council. She said that a complete report on the incident 
to present to the board. She rested with the board the responsibility of hearing that report. Her comments came after a question by Alderman Howard Henry, who said he and other aldermen were placed in an embarrassing position when police asked them about the police search. He did not want to put anybody on the spot when people asked. He said all he knew was what he had appeared in the press. So this goes on. This is kind of a long article, but somebody organized a telephone campaign to spread harassing and false stories, according to the mayor, on the police search. So Steve, from Ottawa, Canada, was it October 21st, 1942? 1952 or 1962? 1952, because that was a good year. You got one. Number, <laughs> you got your fourth one. <laughs> yes, I did. I got one. Look at that. Let's celebrate. Hey, let's let's have a party next week. Let's call it Thanksgiving. What do you think? I love it. Oh, that'd be this week when this comes out, yeah, right? That'll be this week when it comes out, right? And then Thursday, when part two comes out on this one, it will be fun. So, uh, all right. Looky there. Murph's four for 4,000 now. Yeah, four for 21. You sound like the Cubs in baseball. <laughs> <laughs> or the Washington Redskins in football. Or the Redskins, uh, Washington Football Club. I'm sorry, we can't call them Redskins. Anymore. Washington Football Team, yes. Well, Which happens guys. to be down the road for me here. Hey, did you see they beat Tampa Bay? Uh, no, I don't watch pro football. Okay, goodbye. Only college football. Just that's it, man. Too many prima donnas in pro football. I'm with you. Anyway, speaking of prima donnas, let's quit talking about you. Let's talk about our episode, because this one... <laughs> But this this one this one will humble you. I, I guarantee you, this one will humble you. If you think you're a badass, wait till you listen to Alex Collins. Alex is a deputy with the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Office, and so this goes back to February of 2013 when Christopher Dorner, a former LAPD officer, had just gotten out of the Navy and went on a killing spree. He had already killed one police officer, wounded another, shot and killed another two, and then during the ensuing ensuing shootout, you're going to hear. Uh, Alex lost his partner, uh, Deputy Josh McKay. So, but Steve, I think this this one also came to us by our good buddy uh, down in San Diego. There, Mel. It did. Mel Sosa's taking care of us. Thank you, Mel. Um, this one is so sad. I mean, you know, we've been putting some good content out to you. We had the Joe Parasanti story, and what a hero he is. And and wait till you hear Alex's story because it's just it's heartbreaking. It's going to be another one of these where you're cutting onions, uh, but just so honored that he came on to tell his story to us. Uh, it just it's it's a hero. I mean, we keep saying the same thing every week, but it's these guys. And, and I'll tell you, folks, I don't have heroes. I have people I look up to. I guess the closest thing to a hero for me is my dad. But when you hear these stories, these guys were performing heroic actions. And there's also a little surprise in this where it, it wasn't so heroic. And, you know, we're here to tell you the truth. You get the honest stories from the people who lived them. And we're going to give you a little bit of an, an opinion uh, towards the end of this interview. So just hang in there with us on this. Boy, do I just hang on it. Because if you want to see me go sideways, and I rarely do, I go sideways on this one. And I know you do too, Murph. So, But the other thing too is um, you think this story is great. We've got a couple others in the works, females. Oh my gosh. Female officers who have done incredible things. And so we're just going to leave it at that. We're going to tease that. So Steve, you know, this one is just going to, this is going to be a classic episode too. So let me ask yes, you, sir. Steve, are you ready to play the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the game of crimes? Hey, and like we've said before, and this is one you need to get in, sit down, shut up and hold on. Bring on Alex, our new hero. We told you folks, actually, we warned you folks that we were going to reach out and start getting some, I mean, 
not just great stories. I mean, excellent stories and excellent stories of human just bravery, just people who are, no matter what the odds, they fight back. We had Joe Pierzante, we had Michael Neal, you know, we, you just name it. We had a lot of people that have been involved in a lot of stuff. And this one is no different. I mean, this one is a situation you guys all heard and you listened on the news. It started in February of 2013. This is when, and he was a piece of shit, a guy named Chris Dorner got kicked off of LAPD, waited a couple years, lost his case and decided, hey, I'm going to take it out on people. And this guy went on a rampage. He went on a killing rampage. And it just, I mean, this is this is one of those stories that, the only way to get the real story is to talk to somebody who was there. So we've got somebody who was there. In fact, we've got one of the deputies from San Bernardino County that was actually injured at the shooting and is lost. You know, his partner was killed uh, at the final confrontation with Chris Dorner. But look, I'm telling you, his story is amazing. When you hear what he went through and you hear what he did to recover, and Steve, I mean, you also, here's another one. Murph, you have limited value sometimes, but your value is, you know, a few people that can get us some great. <laughs> well, you know, when you're talking, interviews. when you were introducing and saying that we bring on the people that have to, to really have put up with the shit that's going on out there, I thought you were going to talk about some of the people in Kansas that had to put up with your shit out there. You know, they got to be Look, I've tagged made them only heroes. better. I've only made them better. Sharpen the, sharpen the, you know, iron sharpens iron. That's what you tell yourself. Okay. So, but um, this is, this is, and, and all joking aside here, you know, we're trying to lighten the mood because this is such a dark topic, but it's a freaking hero we've got on today here. A guy who never gave up, who has encountered <laughs> additional uh, adverse reactions since then. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about those towards the end of his interview today. But Alex, man, it is such an honor and a pleasure to have you here. I don't have heroes in my life, but I have people I look up to, brother, and you are one of them. Holy cow, what you've gone through and, and what you've made out of it and what you continue to do on a daily basis. Brother, you are setting a standard for everybody else to follow. So it's an honor to have you here today. I appreciate that. Thank you. It means a lot, especially coming well, from you guys. See, now you're being humble, man. Speak up. No. Man. We're talking like no. Superman here. This is, this is better than Batman. I mean, you've been through shit for 10 lifetimes. You've been through stuff that most people will never go through, even if they sit through the movies, you know, for 10 years. So, hey, look. So, um, well, first of all, like I said, welcome. And you are coming to us today from sunny San Bernardino. In fact, you're coming to us from inside your vehicle because you being the SWAT guy, you're not good at planning. You're just good at executing. You forgot your charger for your laptop. Your kids are going to be home in a little bit. So here, here you are. We're just going to, we, we have video going because we want to make sure he doesn't pass out from carbon monoxide. So he's in an open area. You know, we're, we're all good. Hey, so no, Alex, you, let, let's you, get started. I'm sorry, Steve, go ahead. I was going to say, Alex, it's not because he's, you know, he doesn't have his charger card. This man is ready to respond. If a call comes in while we're doing the interview, y'all might hear sirens in the background. This guy's got his camo paint on his call. face already, his do rag, his helmet ready to go. Man, the dude, dude is geared up, always geared up. But uh, as much surveillance, as we do, uh, I'm pretty comfortable in this car. So, <laughs> hundreds of hours in from this front seat right here. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. Uh, we'll have some stories about that too. So, hey, Alex, let's do this. Let's get started like we always do with folks. You know, we we want to know what the hell possessed you to get into this profession we call law enforcement. I mean, I know we had our pre-call yesterday, and you talked about your brothers, and um, so I mean that's kind of cool. Like right? it kind of runs in the family. So, what really possessed you to say, hey, look? 
And when did you know you wanted to be a, a cop? I mean, you're a deputy. You should have been a state trooper. Should have been a city cop. But I mean, you wanted to be a deputy. So he wanted a we're real job. Roll with that. Yeah. He wanted so, a real job. Yeah. Let's talk about. It. So what possessed you to? When did you know first that you wanted to go in law enforcement? Was it because of your brothers or something else? Yeah, it was definitely uh, definitely my brothers. Um, my oldest brother Ryan. He's uh, 12 years older than I am. Uh, my brother Matt, 10 years older than I am. And I think I was. I think I was maybe like 12 or 13 uh, when my brother Ryan graduated the academy. And I remember going um, to his academy graduation and just seeing everybody there in uniform. And then they played the video of the highlights of, of the academy. And I was like, it was, I was just kind of blown away um, by that. And it, from that moment on, it was something I wanted to do. And then my brothers and I are so close, just kind of hanging out with them and hanging out with their friends and you know going to the river with these guys and listening to all their stories is like this is it wait wait a minute you went to the river when they were drinking beer did you participate in illegal consumption of alcohol when you were a youth oh definitely yeah i used to (laughs) drink some of those guys when i was like 16 years old (laughs) well statute of limitations is run out so it's okay i work with all those guys now and then they're like man i remember you drinking beers when you're like 17 18 out at the lake and so we, we have a good laugh about it yeah, you know, and the tough part, too, is when you got older brothers like that. Uh, you, you were joking yesterday, too. You said that you were the only planned one in the family. <laughs> That's what my mom says, but I don't know about yeah. that. <laughs> so one brother's 10 and one brother's 12 years older than you? Yeah. So that would have made life kind of difficult for you growing up because it, it's going to be one of two things. Either you got away with everything or you got away mm-hmm. with nothing. Which one was it? Uh, yeah, probably, probably nothing. Um, but like I said, they, they always make, make jokes with my parents that they raise me and stuff like that. Cause they always pick me up from school, drop me off from school, uh, just spend a lot of time together. So, um, we grew up in a really cool area out here in Southern California. Um, uh, my parents have five acres in the foothills. So we kind of had run of the property from, we had like a little shooting range at the house, rode motorcycles and stuff. And we still, every Sunday we get together and go to my parents' house and hang out and, play football in the backyard. That's cool. Yeah. So when you were like goofing around as a teenager and doing stuff, did you get stopped by any of the local uh, deputies? Uh, no, just oh, one, once or twice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, they got me out of a couple tickets. So, uh-huh. But I bet your brother found out about it though, right? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. Did they tune you up? <laughs> no, it was okay. It was, I think it was, I ran a stop sign or something like that. So they weren't too mad about yeah. it. Yeah, but that was the thing, too, like grew up, when I grew up in a small town, little town of Chapman, Kansas, population like 1,500, you know, salute. They, they put everybody's birthday on the Lions Club calendar. That's how small of a town this was. You couldn't do shit. I mean, you could you go in to try and buy beer. Hi, Morgan, you'll be 18 in four months. Why don't you come back and see yeah. me then? It's like, damn, that's yeah, no fun. But, but it was always so much fun. So they had been on how long had – well, what was your path to get in there, too? Because, I mean, you get out of high school and you talk about you, – you went to college, but – you you sounded like you went to college just to have a placeholder and keep your parents happy till you could apply for the sheriff's office. Yeah, so my brothers are real squared away. Like they're really good. Went to college and did that. My brother Matt went to law school for a little bit, and um, I was kind of the wild one. I think the youngest one always is. That's what it kind of seems to be like. And the youngest one always gets away with more than the older ones did, didn't they? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. I was kind of busy chasing girls and drinking beer and that kind of stuff. And, um, but again, always knew what I wanted to do. And, um, like, uh, my dad, uh, owned his own business. So my brothers and I worked there. So I worked for my dad, um, went to community college and was just kind of waiting 
until I was old enough to apply. Uh, so I applied for the sheriff's department. Like, you're supposed to wait till you're 20 and a half. I, I did it at well, let's not skip over community college because I'm sure you had a couple stories from there. So when you went to community college, I mean, did you think that you were going to at least stick around long enough to graduate and go on? Or were you just like, no, I'm just doing this to keep mom and dad happy. And then the minute I can, uh, you know, like I'm punching out. Yeah, I just did it so I could still live at home. So my mom said if I was going <laughs> to live at home, I had to be going to school. So I think I I had like two classes, like, I don't know, a week or something like that. It was it was the bare minimum. Hey, at least you're being honest about it. <laughs> I hated school. I couldn't yeah. stand it. How come? I don't know. It just didn't really see the point of any of it. I uh, I wish I would have taken it serious now looking back at it, but just never liked it. What were you studying at least? You know, did you have at least a, any any area that you really liked? Uh, any classes that you liked at least? Uh, just business. I, I kind of was into that. And I went back and forth too if I was going to, you know, continue to work for my dad or, or do something else. Um, but, you know, I, law enforcement was always always that, that goal. I was just kind of – it was just weird because I wasn't old enough to apply at the time, so I was just kind of waiting for that. So, But as soon as I was old enough, I did. Did you ever get to go on a ride-along with your brothers? Yeah, I went uh, on a ride-along with my brother Matt. Um, he was on patrol in our Ranch Cucamonga area. And then when I got – when I was in the academy, my uh, oldest brother Ryan had promoted to detective, so he was off patrol. And then so I went with my brother Matt a couple times. Uh like right before the academy. So was it thought what you, I mean, could you talk about kind of the area you were in, what area were they in at that time? Because there's some areas of San Bernardino, obviously, that are just really active and some that are a little bit more remote and a little bit, you know, sleepier, um, you know, a little bit less stressful. What, what kind of areas were your brothers working at the time? Um, so my brother, Matt, he worked uh, patrol in Ranch Cucamonga, which is a large city, um, pretty wealthy city. Um, nothing too, I mean, they get their calls and stuff like that. It's a, it's a, you know, pretty populated area, um, but a pretty, pretty safe area. And then my brother Ryan worked patrol in the city of Highland, which again has a lot of, uh, nicer homes. But once you get towards the, uh, the, um, West end, it borders, uh, San Bernardino city, which is, it's, I think it's, uh, one of our busiest stations for the amount of deputies that we have, uh, in the County. So he worked patrol there, uh, was a motor there, and then promoted to detective and then went to uh, Victorville City, which is one of our another one of our most busy stations. And uh, so he was over there as a detective when I got hired on. So when you say motor, let people know what you mean by that. He was working on motorcycles? Yeah, he was a, uh, <laughs> a rode, a, rode a motorcycle. Uh, yeah, we had a, I, th- I don't think we have any more in the uh, county, or maybe one station has them, but we pretty, pretty much got rid of all of them. But yeah, he was a uh, traffic uh, motor officer for a while. Let me tell you, cycles sometimes, motorcycles can be fun. First of all, when you're single, chicks dig guys on motorcycles, you know, with leather jackets. And uh, <laughs> But, but it, I mean, really from an enforcement tool, it's, I mean, there are some really good uh, uh, things you can do with them. Hey, let's set some context too. Tell us about San Bernardino County because I didn't realize this until you told me about this, not just the population. So let's talk about the population, but the, but just the sheer size of the county. How big is it? Yeah, uh it's so it's the largest geographical county in the in the U.S. Um, so we go all the way. We have uh, like 13 contract cities. So we go all the way from the Colorado River, uh, Nevada, and then we go all the way and border uh, L.A. County, and then we have uh, to the uh, Nevada state line right there in, in Las Vegas. Jeez, what's the population of the county? Uh, you know, I don't I don't know what the population is. Well, here, let's do this. Hey Siri, what's the population of San Bernardino County? 2000. 
2020, the population of San Bernardino County was 2,181,654. Yeah, 2.1 million. Damn. Man, that's, I mean, that's good size. You got a lot of stuff. Uh, What's the busiest city? You said San Bernardino City is like maybe your busiest or dodgiest area? So I think like the busiest is probably, it'd probably be our, our, I think for for call volume for law enforcement would be probably our Victorville City. Um, And then our Highland, uh, just the amount of, because they hardly have any deputies over there. And I think the calls per deputy um, is higher at at our Highland station. And how many deputies do you guys have to cover that entire county? So we have a little over 2,000 sworn. I mean, that's a lot, but spread out over the largest county in the United States, that's really not a lot. I mean, sometimes, I mean, if you're out there working, uh, are you guys set up, you know, sometimes when you're like, state troopers like I was or some other guys that work in rural areas, your closest, you know, backup might be 30, 40 minutes away. What was it like for you guys when you when you were out, or like the area that your brother's in? We're, we're going to get to you working first, but like some of these areas are, do you have some deputies that they're, they're the only ones out there? I mean, just by themselves? Yeah. So like our, uh, our needle station, I think they have like three guys on and they cover a huge area, but yeah, your, your backup could be, even when I went uh, to patrol as a sergeant, I worked our Yucca Valley, uh, it's our Morongo Basin uh, area, but yeah, I mean, you're going to calls and they're 45, 50 minutes away and you're, your backup's an hour away. And I tell you, that's, that's one of those things where you learn a lot of stuff about the art of negotiation. Cause it's like, you can't walk in there like Billy Badass. If you're, if your backup's still an hour away, I mean, it's like, that's the value when you watch the Alaska State Troopers. A friend of mine actually used to be the commissioner of the Alaska State Troopers, and you see guys go up there, and it's like, I mean, sometimes it would take a day to respond to calls. They'd have to fly places. <laughs> Good Lord. Yeah, yeah. It, it takes, it's frustrating sometimes, especially uh, when I was working in Morongo, you're going to calls, and it's, you know, it's an hour there, an hour back, and you get there, and it turns out to be nothing. And then, or you're trying to get there, you're, you know, pretty quick and it's a priority call. And we have a lot of, uh, like deputy involved, uh, accidents. Well, you know, and being out there by yourself. And <clears throat> so our listeners, just so you know what Alex looks like, he's kind of fat and dumpy here. He's out of shape. You know, he can't run. Uh, and, and the truth is he actually looks like a stud. Oh, no, Murph, you got the mirror on. You got the mirror <laughs> yeah, on. That's exactly right. This guy's cut and buff, man. He's ready to go. He's out running again. Uh, you know what? And you seriously, you got to be able to take care of yourself at least to you know keep yourself alive until help gets there. No, uh, especially yeah, especially that. It's, well, I always say that like as a supervisor, and it's like you know you got to take care of yourself, and uh, how are your guys going to trust you to take care of them if you can't take care of yourself? So, well, and just from a fact standpoint, the uh, the a lot of people think that on duty, um, like in shootings or felony, you know, felonious assaults or knifings and stuff kill more police officers. No, the number one thing that kills more cops on duty than anything else are traffic accidents. I mean, every year, I mean, it's just, it is. And it's like, you're going there, you're on a hot call and it's just one of those things of life. I used to tell guys too, as I said, look, you do nobody any good if you can't get there, just slow as smooth, smooth as fast, just get there you know, and, and do the work. But let's talk about you getting in to do the work, right? So you screwed off in college. You took just the bare, you did the bare minimum. So your mom wouldn't, and dad wouldn't kick you out of the house. But when you reach that point, um, tell us about applying then for the sheriff's office. What, what does that process look like when you apply in San Bernardino County? Uh, so I'm trying to think, I think we applied online. Uh, uh, then you submit your, uh, your application then you get a test date for a, um, a written test. Uh, once you've 
taking that, and then they'll give you your score back uh, maybe about a month later and let you know what group you got, what what group you placed in. I think it's like one through four, uh, how you did on the test. If you pass, they'll give you a, uh, a date to show up for uh, physical agility, and you'll take your physical agility test, um, which is like jumping over the wall, the... Uh, the chain link fence, the obstacle course, and then the, uh, I think it's like a, maybe a mile run or something like that, or a mile and a half run. Once you pass that, you'll meet with your background investigator and he'll give you your background packet. You'll fill your background packet out, uh, turn that in. And then you just kind of wait for a phone call, uh, from your background investigator. Was there anything about your background you were worried about? (laughs) No. Um, (laughs) (laughs) anything you want to tell our listening audience today? And knowing the statute of limitations has run out. I mean, it's okay. No, the old, (laughs) you know, with that, it's like, you think everything's going to get you. Um, I remember I worked for my dad, so I just used to steal Gatorades out of the uh, vending machine all the time or not even steal them. I don't know if that would be considered stealing, but I wouldn't pay for them. I'd grab the keys and open them up and, and take them. So, yeah, that was perks. Yeah, perks. Yeah. perks. <laughs> hey, were, were the background investigators, were they deputies or were they contractors? Uh, they were detectives. And then uh, we would contract okay. like the polygraph, I think. Oh, no, we would. I think that's in-house as well, too. So that everything's kind of in-house. So did having two brothers on help or hurt you in the application process? No, I think it, I think it helped me, especially um, being so young. Uh, and then they want, you know, they want life experience and stuff like that. And again, like I worked for my dad, so that probably didn't look good. I lived at home. I was, you know, 20 and a half. Um, Taking the bare minimum at community college. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and then at that time. So my parents, it's kind of a little off story, but so my, uh, I told you where we lived and stuff like that. So my, uh, I think it was back probably in the sixties, my grandpa bought 40 acres in, uh, out here in Southern California and he parceled off five acres for each one of his daughters. And then he numbered them and let them draw this in a hat. Right. And then whatever number they got, that was a parcel of property they got. So right before I was cool. born in 1986, uh, my parents decided to build a house on the property. They had it for a while. Um, so they built a house up there and, you know, uh, they subcontracted it out themselves. And uh, in 2007, um, there's a, obviously a wild, wildfires all the time out here in, in Southern California. Or I think it maybe it's 2006. Uh, their house actually burnt down in a wildfire. So with all this was going on, I was helping my mom and my dad and... Uh, you know, rebuild their house and stuff like that. So, um, we were pretty busy with all that stuff going on. So, um, I was kind of preoccupied, uh, and it kind of took me off guard when, you know, I, my background investigator finally called me. And I think that helped a little bit with the life experience stuff and going through that. Cause I did live at home. And I mean, I was at school actually when the, the house burned down. So like, wow, all I had left was what I was wearing. Yeah. Uh, how, how did that, I mean, wow. man, you just think about too, is think about all the pictures and the memories and the other stuff. Uh, how, how did that, how did that hit everybody? Oh, it was, it was rough. It was rough on my parents. Um, especially my mom, especially since they, you know, built that house pretty much themselves. And I mean, it was just, they put so much work into it over the years. And, uh, I mean, constantly, but I mean, my parents, they're always working, always doing something at the house. I think that's where me and my brothers probably got our, our work ethic from was my mom and dad. Uh, I My dad retired about a year and a half ago, but I could probably call him right now, and he's probably in the backyard building <laughs> some barn or mm-hmm. shed, or my mom's got him doing building a chicken coop or something. They so, sold the business or got family running it? Yeah, they actually sold it. Someone came in and uh, bought the land. So it was 13 acres down there in, in San Bernardino. So. 
my wife Connie, she her home burned down when uh, when she was single, living by herself, and it was, you know, it's devastating because, like you said, you lose everything, mm-hmm. you know, and, and then you get back in the ashes and you try to glean just a little photograph. It's an, it's amazing how important that those little articles that you can actually save become important in your life. Oh, absolutely. That's terrible. Yeah, that's very terrible. But, bad. I, but I think it brought it brought everyone closer together. Um, you know, we were my brothers were they had moved out obviously at the by that time, but uh, I you know brought brought all of us together and we rebuilt and the house is better than it was before and we're all closer you know because of it well that's because they finally got rid of that young son that wouldn't use this like failure to launch here. we called my middle son the boomerang we, we you know he went out came back went out came back third time i said dude you got 30 days figure this out so he, he figured yeah. it out I'm very proud yeah. of him now marshall man he's doing he's doing great but yeah kids the boomerang so you get your background package you get you i mean you finally so I assume it's obvious, uh, not that I assume it's obvious that you finally got an offer letter, right? So what did you have to go in for interviews and, you know, what was that like knowing that, Hey, you know, you got brothers there and you kind of know what's going on. Uh, when did it start becoming really real to you that this was, Hey man, this is going to happen. Yeah. I think, uh, when I went in for that first interview, um, yeah. And you go in there and then uh, I think you write like a, a two page, like biography about yourself, uh, turn that in and then, the process just goes from there with, you know, getting your physical done, um, doing the polygraph. I think you go back for another interview and then you have your uh, interview with the, uh, your chiefs with all our chiefs and stuff like that. And then you get your conditional job offer and your, uh, Academy start date. Well, you, you quite didn't get hired on right away. Right. Cause you said you went through a hot, there was a hiring freeze for a few months. Yeah, it was probably that, or I wasn't old enough because uh, I tested a little too early on it. I remember I was sitting in there um, taking the written test, and they're like, all right, well, if you've ever been convicted of a felony or you're not, you know, 20 and a half, just go ahead and get up and leave. Uh, so I looked around, and some guy got up and walked out, and he was definitely older than 20 and a half. So I was like, I'll just, <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I was like, I'll take it and find Oops. out at least what's on the test. And if I, you know, get disqualified, I'll, I'll take it again in a couple months. So. Well, so being trained investigators, nobody picked up on the fact as you weren't 20 and a half yet, did they? <laughs> no. <laughs> Must have been an old no. DEA guy in charge of the background investigations. They miss <laughs> stuff like that, don't they, don't they Murph? Top-notch investigator, <laughs> brother. There you go. Yeah. So you get the offer letter. Um, so how long, how, long, how long did this whole process take you, including the wait, before you act, from the time you applied till the time you actually, you know, uh, feet dry, as they say, at the academy? Your, your, your boots are on the ground. Gosh, I want to say probably like probably eight to nine months, I think, until um, I got the uh, – till I started the academy. That was uh, July 2007. John. Yeah. Not a bad time to start. What's what's July like in San Bernardino? You know, you're Southern California, so it's got to be like what, eighty degrees all the time? No, no, it's probably where I'm at. It's in the high nineties, hundreds sometimes. So it gets it gets yeah, it gets pretty hot. It also gets pretty cold. I saw a couple of the pictures. We'll talk about those later. But man, you also get some snow in some of those places too. So you've got you're in the county because it's so big. You really do get the weather extremes, don't you? Oh yeah, I mean probably here. Uh, at the end of the month, I could drive 45 minutes, be in the snow, or drive 45 minutes and be down at the beach in 75 degree weather. So, <laughs> not yeah. bad. Rough not life, bad. right? You know. <laughs> Which way do I go today? Do we ski or do we swim? I don't know. You know. Yeah. So yeah. you get in. So you finally make the academy. How how big is your academy class when you guys start? We started with I think 100 and 101. Uh, What'd you end up with? Uh, 
Uh, I think it was 60 we uh, ended up graduating with. Wow. What, wow. What, yeah. you, you guys are, what, were you rough on them? You know, they weren't used to PT or what, what was the biggest reason most of them dropped? Yeah, yeah it's a, it's a high stress academy. Um, again, we lost a lot in the first week. Um, uh, I think we lost a couple to the PT, uh, aspect of it, injuries. And then, uh, then the written tests, I know they do it a little bit different now, but when, uh, when I went through, we'd have a, we'd have our, our, you know, our lectures, our training, our learning domains, and then we'd take a test on it. Uh, I think on Thursday, and then we get our, our scores on Friday. And if you failed uh, two tests, you would get kicked out. Oh, does that sound familiar there, Murph? Did you go home at nighttime? Yeah, we would, yeah, we would go, yeah, we go home at nighttime. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, no, you're just. Somehow I skated through. Well, yeah, but you were taught that same thing though, DEA, right? If you failed test twice, I mean, that was you're out. Yeah, and the the main reasons people got kicked out kicked out though was firearms and PT. Very few went out on the test. Um, you know they they weren't easy. They were not easy, but you could pass them if you studied. You know if you either. put in the work, right? So exactly, yeah, absolutely. Well, you were lucky. You got to go home at night. So um, were there other were there other people? I mean, how big of a how big of an area did you guys draw from? So out of your class, were there people from you know several different states? You know, out of the area, or do do you guys tend to get more people in your area? Yeah, so it was a lot of uh, it was every everyone from California, just for the California Post um, side of it. But uh, yeah, we had them from all, local PDs. Uh, we had some guys from like Mammoth Lakes, which is you know three hours uh, north from where we're at. So it was a it was a mix of, uh, and then we had a couple from Los Angeles County that were over in uh, this academy. Those guys that were three hours away, did they stay in hotels or where did they stay at? Yeah. Um, one of the guys had some family that lived down here, and he would say, uh, I think it was his in-laws had a house down here, so he stayed with his in-laws, and it was another guy, and I think he had a girlfriend or something that lived down this area. But there was no housing provided for anybody to stay uh, on grounds or at the academy if they were, like, from out of state and didn't know anybody there? No. Mm-mm. Yeah, they'd have to get a hotel. And I think a couple of guys did that worked for one of the local PDs. Uh, I think it was San Bruno PD that had a couple of guys that lived down closer to L.A., and they'd stay at a hotel a couple days a week. And that's a long, wow, that's a, that makes it a little rough too. Yeah, they're really early mornings. I mean, we're, you know, you're getting there at, you know, 5.30 and stuff like that and making sure all your stuff's together and not getting yelled at and you don't forget anything. Well, the other, the, yeah. da- the danger too is since you can go home at night, it's like, hey, we can go drink or we can go do stuff. Whereas when you're at the academy, like I was, you know, Murph was, it's like, you don't get to go anywhere. I mean, you got you to gotta stay there. So do you yeah. have anybody get in trouble for uh, maybe having a couple extra beers or partying too much? No, not in my class, but we had, uh, we have memos every night that we have to do that would take pretty much your entire night during the week. Um, but yeah, we would... Towards the towards the end, we'd go get some beers. Me and the me and my buddies, we'd go out on a Friday night and go get some beers and stuff. So, especially just turning twenty one. Yeah, last thing you'd want to do is if you're twenty and a half, go getting a beer right as you're you know at the sheriff's academy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Where do they hold the academy at? It's in uh, it's in Devore. Uh, it's our it's our training center. It's we have a huge uh, range out there. We got our long rifle range. We have our live firehouse for our SWAT team up there. It's a, a huge area. Um, it's like it's a, and then they have like the Glen Helen Raceway right out there, uh, motorcycle track. It's it's not affiliated with the sheriff's department, just just that, that in that area. And then we have one of our uh, it's Glen Helen Rehabilitation Center. It's one of our uh, county jails is also on that property. 
So your academy's down in Devore, you're down there. So from start to finish, how long is your academy uh, from the day you show up until the day you pass all your tests and graduate? Uh, six months. Wow. That's a long, and, but, and that doesn't include any time riding on patrol or riding with officers. That's just six months in the academy. Mm, six months, yeah. Whoa. Okay, that's, that's a fairly long academy, 40 hours a week, I assume, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what was your favorite thing in the academy? Uh, I don't know. I, I really like the academy. Um, I don't know. I kind of like the structure aspect of it, and I met some really good guys that I'm you know best friends with to this day. I was just a best man in uh, my buddy's wedding who I went through the academy with, and he was in my wedding, and just the relationships that we built there, and I mean, they'll be friends till the day I die. So that's one of the coolest things about law enforcement is the camaraderie. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Um, there was only, there was only 16 in my class when I graduated the state patrol, they had troubles. 2000 people applied, they narrowed it down. Only 16 made the Academy. Oh, wow. Well, part of it too was budget. They just couldn't, I mean, it was like you go through tough budget times. It's like, we need to hire a hundred, we could only hire 16. Literally, they needed to hire a hundred, but they only had the money for 16. So how in, how in the world did you make that cutoff? I was number two, baby. I was number two in the class. You like the, you must've been the uh, token something. Token non-hillbilly <laughs> apparently. So, Hey, so hey, don't, don't, don't give hillbillies a hard time. We're yeah. good people. Yeah, they are when you find them, <laughs> but they're not hiding in the woods, getting ready to snipe your ass. Cause you're, you're walking up on their moonshine still. So, uh, that's right. That's right. That's precious hey, stuff. By the way, shine. Uh, we had a guy in college, Andy North, remember it today, man, his fucker could make moonshine. <laughs> his parents got grants for ethanol when they were starting to do ethanol. He comes in one day with this stuff and it's like, what the hell is it? He said, watch this. He took out a syringe and shot it into the fire at our fraternity house. All I saw was freaking blue flame go up through the fireplace. He goes, you guys want a drink of that? It's like, fuck oh. no. Oh, oh, it was it was moonshine. It was moonshine made from corn. Yeah, I never liked it. Uh, uh, anyway, let's 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 uh, let's get back to a regularly scheduled podcast. Let's talk about you, Alex. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, so six months. So now, how did you guys go about figuring out where it is you were going to be posted? You know, did you guys get the pick? Did they just say this is where you're going? Um, did you guys have any say in it at all? No, we didn't. So uh, we I graduated like right before uh, Christmas. So I think we graduated like. December 20th or something like that. And then uh, for the deputies, you know, we all get assigned to the jails unless I think the only station you can go that was taking guys straight to patrol at that time was uh, our Colorado River station. So I think one of the guys from the academy, they came in there and like, hey, does anyone want to go to the river? Um, and one of the guys like, yeah, I'll go. So he ended up going straight to patrol out to the, our river station. So let's talk about that real quick too, because we, we kind of glossed over that. So when you get out and, and we found this too, with a lot of big sheriff's office, like LA, you know, like some of the others and you got to work in the jail first. I mean, I think uh, Steve didn't JP when he got on the sheriff's office, I think he started off in mm-hmm. the jail, right? Uh, so Javier. Yep. Got to do your jail yeah, time. Had first. to do time. I did time with all, of, I did time with 500 guys. So, uh, so where did you do your time at there? Hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. We don't want to know about that. Well, Morgan, just you need that at that point. Uh, no, we're leaving it in. We're leaving it in. All right. <laughs> yeah, so um, I ended up going to our, our Glen Helen uh, Rehabilitation Center, which is kind of our small. It was our low security um, jail. wasn't too any, anything too bad. But, yeah, when we went and uh, I think the week of grad, like graduation week, um, the deputies, we go down and we get sworn in and, and get our badges and stuff like that. And then we would meet with uh, the commanders were there from all the 
um, the jail facilities, and they just kind of split us up uh, just by name. Like, all right, you guys are going to this jail. You guys are going to that jail. And then the guys that they would try to do the best they could with the people that lived uh, like we have, we call it our high desert area um, that lived up there. We have a jail up there as well. So they try to accommodate the guys so they're not driving an hour to the jail and stuff like that. So, or if someone from the Valley driving up to our, our high desert uh, jail, but it does happen sometimes, you know, uh, they don't have their guys don't have their addresses updated or either one, they just don't have a spot for them. So they'll end up going to whatever jail they tell you to go to. What's the longest you knew of somebody having to drive to go to work? Oh, I, when I was at our Morongo station, I had a guy, he went, he would work patrol at our river station and uh, he wanted to transfer just to be a busier station, just kind of looks better uh, for promotion. So he would commute from uh, – he lived in Lake Havasu, which is Arizona. So he'd commute from Arizona to our Morongo station. I think it was like maybe two and a half hours, three hours. Wait, no, no, wait a minute. He could live in Arizona? I, well, no, actually, you know, that's okay. We see some other folks, uh, Loudoun County, where we're at the sheriff's office. I know some guys live in West Virginia. They just can't take their – they have uh, take-home vehicles, so they can't – take their vehicles across state lines. They have to park them inside there, you know, and then come back. So, it, uh, oh, okay. Yeah. But I mean, that's, wow. That's a three, three and a three hour drive just to get there. Yeah. He, he, he'd stay at the, we had a little bunk room at the station. So he'd, he'd crash at the station during his work week and then just drive home at the end of the week. Oh, okay. So, um, so how, how, how much time did you do on the inside, <laughs> you know, before you finally got to go, to, I, I did eight months on the inside. So how much time did you do on the inside before they finally, uh, unleashed you and put you on patrol? Yeah, so I think I think I did. It was close to like seven months because we had because um, it was we have to go to like two or three weeks of uh, like jail operations training after the academy. But it was so close to Christmas, they were everyone was kind of that was putting that training on was off and for the holidays and stuff like that. So uh, we went and I think we worked a couple weeks um, at the jail, uh, starting our it's called like CTO training, um, and then uh, then we would go when I went to two weeks of jail ops and then did like seven months at the jail. But yeah, when you get there, you put your transfer request in for all the patrol stations you want to go to. Um, so I kind of put everywhere on there and <laughs> <laughs> everywhere, but here. Yeah, it was. Yeah. So what'd you get? Uh, I went to big bear, big bear. Uh, it's a little mountain community. So how close was that to home? Your original home? So in the summer I could get up there if I'm hauling, butt. you know, I could get up there in 45 minutes in the winter. Sometimes, three hours, four hours. So, and you guys yeah. didn't have take home cars. You had to drive your own, um, personal vehicles, your POVs to get to your GOVs, right? Yeah. So if you're on patrol, um, and you're a deputy, yeah, you're driving, driving your own car. So the only ones that get cars are if you're in a specialized, uh, division, whether it's, you know, our narcotics or, our, uh, specialized enforcement division. Um, but at that time, that was pretty much anyone that was in those divisions was a, was a detective. They maybe would have like one deputy on the team. Um, now, were you guys allowed to, did you guys uh, wear your uniforms home and everything and then dress up in them and drive to work or did you have to get dressed at the station? Yeah, everyone would just, uh, some of the old timers would, you know, wear their uniform pants and white shirt. But yeah, we all, we all changed in the locker room and stuff. How come? Just cause, because it's too uncomfortable or you just didn't want to be a target while you were out there driving in a civilian vehicle? Yeah, just that, and then just the comfort aspect of it. Well, you mean it's not comfortable wearing 25 pounds of gear with a Kevlar vest? and uh... 
<laughs> yeah, no, not at all. That's why chiropractors <laughs> hang around cop stations and academies. It's like, hey, yeah. you, know, oh, you yeah. look like you could use a chiropractor. Yeah. Yeah. Future clients. Oh, man, all the time. So um, how long was your FTO? So your field training officer program. So how long did you have to ride uh, with a, a training officer before they unleashed you? Uh, so normally it's about three months with that. And I think I did like 10 or 11, 11 weeks, um, of FTO. Was that because you were just a superstar student or you were just too much of a pain in the ass and they wanted to get you out on patrol as soon as possible? <laughs> no, I had, I had some really good, uh, FTOs up, up in the big bear. Again, like I was, it was a lot of, uh, guys that had been on for a long time and my, FTO, my first FTO, he got his, I know we remember he got his, uh, like 20 year pin, um, when I was on training with him. So a lot of knowledge. Um, and again, it wasn't that busy of a station and, uh, you know, I had my brothers to help me and I, I kind of caught on pretty quick with that. And I think one of my buddies from the Academy, he, uh, he's went up to big bear the same time I did. And he did about the same time as well. So you started off at Big Bear and you stayed there. We're, we'll get into the shooting and Chris Dorna, but you, you actually were there the entire time, right, up until the shooting? Yeah, I was. Yeah. Um, what What was it like, though? Uh, were you, I mean, did you want to go to, I mean, Big Bear, sound, I mean, it sounds beautiful. I mean, you see pictures and stuff. It's a very beautiful area. But um, was it getting you the kind of action you liked or what was the trade-off for you between wanting to be in uniform, being a cop, being on the road, but being in an area to where it's like, you know, maybe some of the calls were like, you know, a bear just got into my trash can or, you know, uh, working to just a little, you know, motor vehicle collision. Yeah, I, I definitely went up there. Um, I was commuting, you know, to, it was a, it was a pain. It was, uh, driving those mountain roads and just a battle to get to work and to get home, especially in the snow. So I, I wanted to be there, but yeah, I, I was going to do my, uh, my two years and put my transfer request in and try and get back down to our, our Valley area, which is our busier stations. Um, when I was up there, I think I was getting close to my, my two years and we were all patrols on a 10 hour shifts at the time. So we had a day shift. Was that four tens then what they used to call four tens, four days on three days off. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we'd have a, a day shift, a swing shift, and then a, a graveyard shift. So we went to uh transition to 12 hour shifts, um, across department wide. So it, it eliminated a lot of patrol positions when we went to those 12 hour shifts. So a lot of guys that were brand new and that were on patrol included myself, they got sent back to the jail because they weren't needed on patrol anymore. So they were going to have to go back to the jail and uh, wait another, however long till another patrol spot opened up. Um, luckily my captain really liked me and uh, he was able to keep me at the station and I didn't have to go back to the jail. So, but it, it made me stay up there from, went from two years. I ended up being up there for five years. Wow. But the other thing you're talking about too, that driving back and forth and you're driving your own personal vehicle with the price of gas in California, it had to be fricking killing you. Yeah, it was, it was crazy. And then, like I said, I, I was driving a, an H2 at the time <laughs> and it was, yeah, it was about <laughs> 50, you, 60. you getting gallon. like, you know, four miles to the gallon? Yeah. They they said it averages 10, but that's, oh, that's definitely a, lie. Not a lie. Yeah. It was, it was like six. Yeah. Just, you could, you, the minute you just leave the, in an intersection, put your foot in it to accelerate, you could just watch the gas gauge just drop on those things. Oh yeah. I think, cause that was like 2008 when it was probably the gas prices, what they are now. And, uh, so I ended up, uh, I ended up renting a house up there, um, in Big Bear. And so I could stay there, but I, I really didn't like staying up there. It was just, um, wasn't fun. So I'd stay there during the, uh, 
the work week, and then I'd go back down and, and stay at my parents' house on the weekend. Well, just the savings and gas, man, you could have bought a mansion for what you were paying a year <laughs> in gas, man. So um, so what what happened to keep you up there? So, like, I mean, you, you had your two years coming up, but did you stay on patrol? Or you actually, we talked about, uh, you, you started looking at doing different things, and there was one big goal you wanted to do that your brothers did. And, and so let's talk about that. So what were you doing so that you could get into the place you wanted to be? Yeah, so my ultimate goal um, was to get onto our Specialized Enforcement Division, which is our, our department SWAT team. Um, when I started patrol, my brother uh, had transferred to that division, my oldest brother, Ryan, and he was a detective over there uh, for several years. Um, and then, yeah, why I ended up staying in Big Bear is because uh, there was just kind of nowhere for me to go at that time with the, all the guys getting sent back to the jail just when we went to those 12s. So there was— uh, Why did they go to the 12-hour shifts? Was it was it a— was it a money issue? Was it just a staffing issue? Were they trying to what what problem were they trying to solve? Because look, a lot of people don't realize, but twelve hour shifts that means you got twelve hours plus you got paperwork, and so by the time you get done trying to drive back and then come back, you'd lucky if you'd get four hours of sleep. Yeah, I think it was uh, just uh, more cost effective, and I actually I enjoy I like the twelves a lot better than the tens. Um, you know, you get the three and then four days off. Uh, so that's nice. And then the way how it works out, you have like you have your shift. So you work with all the guys. But before it was like, you know, a couple of guys would work like Monday uh, through Thursday. Some guys would work, you know, Tuesday through Friday. And it was just kind of hit and miss. Um, but now everyone, you know, you're working you're working Tuesday, Tuesday through Friday uh, or Friday through Tuesday. And it's all the same guys, same sergeant. Uh, so I like I like that a little bit better. So what days did you have off when you were on the th- uh, the three twelves? Um, we would rotate every three months. Um, I I like swing shift was probably the best. That's a, the one thing that kind of sucks. We don't have uh, the swing shift anymore with the twelves, but that was probably my favorite. So what was it? Seven to seven, uh, six to six. Uh, when we were working the swing shift, um, I think it was uh, what did we do like five to two or something like that. No, I meant. But when you went to the twelve hour shifts, how would they how would they split you up? Oh yeah, yeah. So it was seven to seven. Man, I, I'm telling you, that just that's rough on the body. I mean, the state patrol, uh, they used to do some crazy shit. It, the, we would work three nights, three days, three days off. Three nights, three days, three days off. Three nights, three or four days, three days, four nights, three days, three days off. Stuff like that. And it just, I mean, you'd be going to work on a Friday night at six, getting off at three, four in the morning, doing that the same thing Saturday, Sunday, four to one. Monday, you'd have to be back to work at 9 a.m. Tuesday, you'd be going to work at 7 a.m. Wednesday, you'd be going to work at 5 a.m. Yeah. And you do that in the span of... And they wonder why cops had sleeping problems and weight problems and shit, you know? Yeah. I yeah. think they fixed that. They've gone to, they've gone to you know, the uh, permanent or at least standard shifts so that you don't have to do that screwy stuff. But, but during that time, were you single? At what point during this did you get married? Uh, I got married in 2011. And who did you find that was crazy enough to say, yeah, here's a guy who owns an H2, spends 50 bucks a day in gas. He's obviously going to make good life choices for me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I met her in high school, so uh, I got her a little bit early. So, um, but yeah, uh, you know, my wife, we we dated in in high school and she lived at her parents, was going to school. Um, I lived at my parents, was, you know, pretending I was going to school. Um, mostly hungover, but yeah. <laughs> what did she think of, what did she think of your, uh, I mean, she obviously, if she dated you for that long, she knew that you wanted to join the sheriff's office. What did she think of that? 
Uh, yeah, I think, I mean, she thought it was a good career and stuff like that. She probably, um, I don't know, didn't wish I made more money or something. I don't know, but, uh. She's happy. Well, now. if you hadn't bought an H two, you might have had money to take her out to dinner. <laughs> you cheap ass. That was my problem. I spent I spent all my money on on going out and buying drinks and stuff. Yeah, but she's she's she manages the money. She's a little bit better at it than I am. So, yeah, I just swipe that card till it you know starts beeping and tells me I have no more money. So. My wife says I know we have money. I still have checks. I'm going, That's not the way it works, honey. <laughs> I got a kid or two that thinks that. Uh, oh, my God. Yeah, what? Still must work. The card, I still have the card. It still must work. So, um, well, let, let's talk about then. So, you're there. Uh, what's your next? So, you go to you go to the patrol. Now, the one thing we did talk about that the sheriff's office does, and I want people to understand, um, there's a lot of cities, not just California, but a lot of places throughout the United States that don't have the money to have their own city police department, so they contract with the sheriff's office. So, let's talk about some of the contract policing that the San Bernardino Sheriff's Office would do? You know, what kind of cities would you guys provide it to? Would it be a city or would it be an area? You know, and did you ever work at it? You know, was the area you were in, was that a, was that a contract city? Yeah, so the, um, we have the, you know, cities have their local uh, police departments and stuff like that. But we, this area, we contract most with those cities. Um, I'm not obviously a city planner or anything like that, uh, how it works, but it, w- it would make more sense, right? So we have our, our county SWAT team, our homicide team, our evidence uh, division and all that other stuff, and then our county jails. So, yeah, they will contract police services. But it's, like I said, 13 contract cities. So each station has a, a captain, a lieutenant, and then the captain would be like the police chief. And then uh, and then we cover, our obviously, the county areas. Well, how does that work, though? Because when you have a city police department, you think that, hey, you're going to be responsive to my city, and it's kind of like you're accountable to the citizens of that city, but you guys have countywide jurisdiction. So did they give you the mentalities that, hey, when you do this contract policing, you are operating as an effective police force, or are you a deputy that's just operating in a city? And Because um, there, there has to be some dynamics that go with that, some issues you got to resolve with the with the town. Yeah, it's, it's just the police. I mean, like our cars say police on the side of them and stuff like that. So, oh, they do. Uh huh. Yeah, I know. Like back east, a lot of like sheriffs' offices are kind of different. Like they, I know some of them only do like jail stuff or custody stuff or or the court stuff. But yeah, it's well, it's just the same same thing. And then like again, they go to you know the sheriff's department academy and uh, do that. So yeah, but yeah, police. And then Big Bear is a uh, we actually had a, it was a city of Big Bear Lake, so it was a contract city with them. And then it was uh, we had the county area of Big Bear City that we would cover. So. But yeah, I mean, like they don't want like if because the our cars they would the city was obviously pay for those cars like and those deputies and stuff like that. So if you're working the city, you pretty much stay in the city unless something major happens. And then you know the city doesn't want to see uh, you know their Big Bear Lake uh, vehicles off roading in like the county area or something like that. So <laughs> unless you have an H two Hummer right that says police on the side, yeah. <laughs> you can go through that stuff. Yeah. So what was your next major? Uh, position after yeah so you, you you're on patrol right so you wanted to get into special enforcement but what what's the path to get there what what other position did you end up getting into yeah so when i ended up staying in big bear because i was there um by this time it was like i think i was there for like like three and a half four years um so my next goal was to make detective and then because at the time you know that was all that was pretty much at any of these specialized divisions was detectives so that was the, the goal and you have to have uh i think it's three years on patrol um, before you can start testing for that. 
So I went in there and I, uh, I, you know, would talk to our lieutenant and captain and stuff. And I put so much time into that station. And if I transferred, I'd kind of be starting all over again and be back at the bottom as a new guy. So it just kind of made more sense just to stay there and try and get promoted out of there. Um, so my captain, uh, we had a new captain come in and awesome guys names, Tom Bradford. He's, he's since retired. And, uh, you know, we got along great. The guys that I worked with were great. I think there was only 23 deputies assigned to the station at that time. Um, so it made your odds of getting detective pretty good, right? Well, yeah. So when, you, yeah. <laughs> and that's, <laughs> yeah. So at that station though, but they pull, when you get detective, they pull from county. They can pull from all over the county. Yeah. So they pull from everybody and then where there was a, a open spot. So yeah. Cause you, but that was unusual. You said, right. Or was that for that position? Cause normally if you make like a promotion, which detective would be a promotion, they normally move you out. Is that just for, is that just for the, uh, like a uh, corporal or sergeant for the supervisory positions or is that their philosophy behind detectives that if you get it they would prefer you to move to another station and start your duties there yeah so most of the time they will um they'll promote you and then move you somewhere else whether it's specialized or another uh so if you're a deputy and you make detective they may throw you at uh another uh patrol station as that station detective and then you work there for a little bit and then you uh could either transfer to um, a specialized division whether it be homicide or narcotics or gangs or specialized enforcement. So did you get any training, specialized training when you made detective? Did they send you to another school or another training thing? Or was that more OJT since you were out, uh, since you're, you know, kind of a ways out there? Yeah. So when I, I didn't get promoted, um, at that time prior to the, the shooting or anything. So I was, uh, in group one for detective. So they had a, a, a spot, um, where they, let me be uh, like, it's called acting detective where you go up there, you go in the detective's office and you get cases and you're just kind of a patrol or you're a deputy just kind of filling that role. Just, uh, um, uh, it's a, right. Yeah. So it, it was really good. And one of my patrol partners, uh, Jeremy King, uh, we were patrol together for a long time and always look at, look at, took care of me, looked after me. And, uh, he promoted, I think, uh, six months prior and he actually got to stay at the big bear station. He lived up there, uh, lived up there for a long time. And then our captain was actually his patrol sergeant at that station prior, so he loved him. Um, so he stayed up there, and then I got to be partners with him uh, at the Big Bear Station as an acting detective. Well, you and Murph got something in common. He acted like a DEA. He was acting as a DEA agent for a lot of years, too. I don't know if you ever really became one. Did you, Murph? Did you really get get the full role? Well, I was one of the token. They needed a hillbilly, so that was me. Cross between the West Virginia and the Tennessee kid. That's right. You got to know what you are, redneck hillbilly. I cover two. I can see. I can cover two areas that way. You can, and you cover you know two classes you know of people we can promote. So redneck and hillbilly. And we're still right way above troopers. So hey, I'm good. Yeah, that's in your in your in your dreams. Remember, remember hashtag Drew Hogan. He couldn't make it to the state patrol. The only place he could make it was DEA. Remember that, Murph? Oh yeah. We'll tell you about that story in a little bit. A guy who claimed credit for capturing El Chapo, which he really didn't. So. Um, hmm. But Alex, but going back, so uh, you, I didn't real okay, I kind of missed that then from the call. You were just acting detective, you know, when this was going on. So mm-hmm. let's start setting the context now because by this time, um, you got on in 2007, right? Finally made it out onto the road in 2008. Yep. Yeah, and so you're out now for about um, four years, four and a half years, um, 
when this whole incident basically the 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 issue with Dorner started obviously well before that. So let's give folks some just some quick context because I know you've got a whole presentation. But before we actually get into the the events that happened, which started in February of 2013, let's set some context for who Christopher Dorner was. Okay. Yeah. Um, so he was uh, tried to be an LAPD officer, and um, that didn't work for him. But prior to that, he uh, he was in the I think he was in the Navy Reserves. Um, and then he applied, uh, in 2005 with LAPD. Um, and then he got called to active duty, I think right after the Academy in 2006 with LA. Um, so he goes, goes on deployment, uh, for about a year. Uh, he had a bunch of stuff on his Facebook that he'd like deployed to Iraq, Afghanistan and stuff like that, but he didn't. He, uh, I think all those pictures were taken out out here in the local desert with his own gear and stuff like that. So it's just kind of like a, a wannabe um, I would assume. So he, uh, did that year deployment, uh, came back and then started his FTO program with, uh, Teresa Evans. She was his, uh, field training officer. Um, so he's on FTO, uh, with Evans. And this is all, I, this is all stuff that, uh, this is all uh, open source. This is all public record stuff. And it came out in the, it came out in the aftermath, you know, during the investigation. So this, this is, uh, like the stuff you're giving. We just want everybody to know there's nothing confidential here that we're telling the public. No. And then I, yeah, again, I don't have any direct knowledge from with LAPD or anything like that or any inside information with them. Um, so Dorner was on FTO and it looked like he was going to, uh, going to fail. Um, wasn't, wasn't passing his training, wasn't responding to training. Uh, and he was getting his, uh, weekly evals and it looked like he was, uh, he, his marks were way down and he was going to get fired. Um, so right after he got his, uh, performance evaluation, um, from Evans, he contacts his supervisor and he said, uh, just accused, uh, officer Evans of, uh, kicking a handcuffed subject that they dealt with. I think it was, a uh, um, a mentally ill guy they detained for, uh, you know, 5150 hold. And just to put it into context now, we're, we're, and this is based, thank you for your notes too. And we did our research too, but that was June 28th, 2007. So this, this whole thing, this whole history with Dorner has a very long arc before we get to 2013. So this guy goes for a lot of years, right? But, uh, tell everybody too. So you can't use code. Mer- you you, you freaking feds and your people in California is one eighty. <laughs> everybody knows what an one eighty seven PC is because we all watch Dragnet, you know, in one Adam twelve, right? But what's a what's a fifty one fifty hold? Yeah, that's just a mental health evaluation, a seventy two hour. Uh, you know, where our code, um, our welfare institution code that we can uh, detain them and bring them to a mental health hospital for uh, seventy two hours for them to be evaluated. Fuck, I'm staying out of California then, man. I might not make it yeah. out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if you're a you know, danger to yourself or others, we can do that. Well, have so. you seen Murphy Drive? He's a danger to everybody. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe according to a trooper, just because you guys can't keep up. <laughs> we rode. He was so nice. He came down and gave me and my wife a ride from the airport after we had taken our first vacation in a year and a half. We came back from Cancun. There is, it was a shit show. We should have gone, should have gone up to the other level, but man, it's the international terminal and Murph pulls up in his huge Ford F-150. We're throwing her in the vehicle. We're throwing luggage in the back. And we, I mean, it is, it, what did it take you like a half hour to get around just the loop to get there? I think. Uh, yeah. The Dulles airport sucks when it's busy when it's not busy. It's not bad. But when this, when the traffic's out there and all those idiots. Yeah. Orlando's you know, figured was, it out. Orlando airport. Again, there we could digress again. We're back there. So, um, uh, 
But yeah, so the reason we were saying that is too, because um, this whole thing with him starts in June 28th of 2007, right? So let's continue on there from Alex. So, you know, he kind of has his issues, he gets kicked out, and then what happens next? Uh, Yeah, so uh, it opens an internal affairs investigation. Um, They investigate it. Uh, They found out that Dorner— They investigate the Officer Evans, right? Yeah, they do. Well, it's just an incident with Dorner accused um, of her— you know, hitting someone that was handcuffed. So they, uh, goes to IA, they investigate it, do their interviews. Um, and during the internal investigation, uh, Dorner was represented by, uh, former LAPD captain Randall Kwan. And from what I've been told is that captain Kwan did like a really good job. I, I think he, be, he became a, an attorney once he retired, uh, and re- represent officers. I, from what I've been told, he d- did a really good job and, uh, did everything he could to, you know, have Dorner keep his job and stuff like that. Um, but they found out Dorner was lying and made the incident up, and Dorner was uh, subsequently fired um, in 2008. So now we're talking September. So it, it goes, it takes June, July, August, and into September. And the, the, the bad part, too, is Officer Evans, she's kind of sidelined. She can't do squat. She's under investigation and everything. I mean, no extra duty, no other stuff. She just kind of probably, what, an admin position or desk position when stuff like that happens? Uh, I don't know how, how LAPD uh, does that. And then for us, depending on, you know, what the accusations are with that. Um, sometimes you can continue to work sometimes. Um, yeah, they'll put you on admin leave. Uh, so I don't, I just kind of depends upon the seriousness of the charge and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And then, uh, with that, and then Dorner was, uh, I, I don't, again, LAPD does a little bit different. They have like their board of rights hearing where they take, uh, like random commanders or captains. And, uh, I think they present the case and stuff like that. And then that group, uh, decides if, the officer is going to get terminated or not. Well, and I think just for people's timeline to flesh this out, he gets fired in September of 2008. He appeals this. This goes all the way through court, and it's in 2011. Finally, it makes court, and he is shot down again. I mean, he's like, that's it. You know, you've got your appeal, you know, is denied. He's basically run out of action. So three years there. And so this goes for another two years, I think, doesn't it? Until this is kind of when he stews on this for a couple of years until February of 2013. Yeah. He, he, uh, has a couple of years, gets his, you know, his, puts his manifesto out that all the people he's going to get revenge and he felt had wronged him. And, um, so yeah. Well, that manifesto is available out there on the inter- interwebs if you guys search for it, but it's chilling. I mean, I just read some of it, not only in yours, but some of the news reports. But um, basically, he says, I'll be waiting for a public response at a press conference. When the truth comes out, the killing stops. He's he's warning people right now. He's going to kill until the whatever his version of the truth is that comes out. And you know, it's one of those things. We looked at the the Parkland High School shooting. You know, there were indications that kid had talked about it. We've seen where other kids have talked and posted stuff. And I, I just don't know. I mean, it's one of those things you wonder, did, did I, you know, it's, it's hard because there's so much stuff on Facebook. Did they miss this? Was anybody aware of this? And if so, you know, you know, what did you guys even, was there any kind of an alert put out to you guys or did you guys just, was that, was this something you guys didn't know about in San Bernardino when this was going on? Yeah, he didn't, he didn't post it until, uh, the day after, uh, he ended up, uh, doing his first two murders. So it, it wasn't, he didn't post it till, uh, he killed the first two people. I was going to say in his manifesto, <clears throat> other than wanting his version of the truth, was there anything else he was demanding? I mean, he's saying that, you know, the killing stops when the truth comes out. Was he think he's going to walk away from murder? I, I, I think he was just freaking crazy. I think he's a nut. 
Well, you know, one of the real sad parts about this too, yeah, he, you're right. Sorry, yeah, day he puts that out the day after, but the day before, February 3rd. This is the one that, so the reason that you mentioned Randall Kwan is there is a tie-in to the first set of victims that are discovered from this, aren't there? Yeah, so Dorner, I think somewhere in the manifesto, he puts out that he's not going to kill them directly. He's going to get them where it hurts, and he's going to kill their their family members, um, so they have to suffer, uh, like how he suffered or something like that. But uh, yeah, so the city of Irvine, um, which is a really nice city, uh, so uh, they respond to a, uh, a double homicide in a uh, apartment um, parking complex. Um, uh, when the officers get there, they find uh, the female, I think might have been in the uh, driver's seat, and that was uh, Monica Kwan, the daughter of Randall Kwan, and her fiancé, Keith Lawrence, and they were uh, both shot to death uh, sitting in their vehicle. Uh, and the father knew something was going on because he kept trying to get a hold of his daughter and couldn't get a hold of it. Then he hears his reports, and his worry was, you know, he was concerned that it was his daughter, and what a hell of a way to find out. You're watching the news reports and you're seeing this go on and you're going, because now he's got the tie-in. I mean, I don't know if he knew it at the time, but um, you, you kind of wonder why would why would Dorner pick him to go after first? Because but by all accounts, whether you, you know, the news reports, you know, and what you said, the captain, the, the Randall Kwan, he did his best for Dorner. I mean, he represented him kind of the same way John Adams represented the British troops, you know, after the Boston massacre. It's like... He did his job. What you know, you wonder what makes these guys twist off to where they want to hold the guy that defended him yeah, I accountable. Guess, I guess Dorner felt that he didn't do a good enough job or didn't care enough uh, about his case. Yeah, and these jerks—they never accept responsibility for their own actions. It's always it's somebody everybody else's, else's problem. problem. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. somebody could no, no way it could be me. It's everybody else's fault. I was denied this, denied that. Mm-hmm. Well, the other thing too is that, like, according to your notes here too, they found fourteen. Nine millimeter casings. I mean, he just didn't shoot them. I mean, he, when you see that that number of rounds and stuff, it's personal. He he obviously definitely made it personal because that, not not to coin a phrase, but that was overkill. Is exactly what it was. You didn't need fourteen rounds. Yeah, shot him with a suppressed nine millimeter pistol, and he was doing surveillance on him. Uh, obviously, found out where they lived. He knew where. Uh, I think she was a, a basketball coach for a, a local college, um, and he. I think he ended up calling there and uh, was asking um, some of the staff about if they had a, an away game or when they're going to come back or, or along those lines. But yeah, he was definitely uh, putting in work to find find these people. You know, think about it as a father, and we're all three of us are fathers, <clears throat> and and just think because of our job, one of our children, you know, was assassinated. I can't imagine what her dad must have gone through. That's horrible. Well, well, it's horrendous too. And, and then when you start listening to this, you start realizing, I mean, this is the whole setup for why this thing, number one, was such a national story. But number two, he really is, in a sense, using uh, maybe some of his military training. It's asymmetric warfare. I mean, the, the cops usually aren't the hunted ones. They're not the prey. And he's he's trying to turn the tables and make everybody worry, especially the cops, that he's coming after. And he says that. He says, he's coming after you next. You know, he says, you're not going to be safe. You want that Medal of Adler? The only way you're going to get it is by dying. You know, don't stop me. Don't try and do anything. Yeah, um, you know, and, and I mean, coming after us is one thing, but coming after our families, that, that takes it to a whole new level. 
but but that's I think that's what that was the whole element of fear he was also instilling, which is it's not just me. It's you got to worry about everybody. So, but but that happens on uh, Sunday, February third. And so the other thing though too is uh, there was an interesting find uh, on February fourth, Alex. Um, kind of in a dumpster. What was that? Yeah, so uh, a National City Police officer, uh, kind of right down there in, in the San Diego area, uh, he found a duty belt, a bunch of uh, police stuff, a notepad, um, and a uniform name tag uh, from LAPD with the name Dorner on it and a, and a dumpster behind a business. Um, so that officer, uh, he ends up contacting uh, LAPD, and just I think he assumed that uh, some an LAPD officer had gotten their car broken into and gives them the name Dorner. Uh, they look into it and they find out, you know, obviously Dorner had this history with LA and uh, that's when they start putting the, the pieces together. And then that's when they find out that Dorner posted this uh, manifesto on his Facebook page and then uh, tie him as the uh, suspect for uh, Monica Kwan and Keith Lawrence's murder. You know, and part of this that may have triggered this too, and we wanted to add that date in there too, is that February 1st, the day, two days before, three days before this all starts, um, Dorner discharges honorably from the Navy. So now he's been in the Navy the whole time. Now he's out. Now I think he's putting, he's been putting together his plan. February 3rd, you got the couple folks, uh, you've got Monica Kwan and Keith Lawrence killed in Irvine, but February 5th, this is the other thing when we're pulling up some additional research, you, I, I think you were talking earlier was a truck is actually what he was trying to steal was, um, he was looking at, or he was down at the Navy hotel in San Diego. Um, and, I think they were trying to figure out where he was at and why, but he still had an ID card. He still had some stuff down there. So he was down in San Diego, you know, uh, after this stuff happened. So how far of a drive is it from Irvine to San Diego? Uh, I think it probably might be, uh, maybe, I don't know, with traffic and everything, maybe about 45 minutes, an hour. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So not really that much then. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so he's announced as a suspect, but then again, that's this was the attempted boat theft then in San Diego. So he tried to steal a boat from somebody in San Diego. He failed and fled, um, and later they find a wallet with his ID and an LAPD detective's badge near the San Diego airport, which makes you think is that, hey, man, he's trying to use, um, he's trying to impersonate cops, you know, maybe to get closer. So as this timeline continues on, the thing we're seeing, he's trying to impersonate a cop. He's got the detective's badge. You found all of that stuff. I'm surprised. Well, before we get into the next part, I'm surprised, Alex, that he threw away his uniform and stuff, you know, and through all of that stuff. It's like he continuously, it seems, through this whole incident, gets rid of or disposes of guns, ammunition, you know, lots of stuff that you thought he would want to hang on to. Yeah, just kind of weird in this. With National City, it just kind of seems like he was, like, trying to get, you know, they would find out who he was and that he was, uh, they would eventually see his manifesto on his Facebook page and stuff like that, so. Well, so anyway, so when we move forward, right, so, like, the February 6th, they announce him as a suspect. They announce threats. They say authorities named Dorner a suspect in the Irvine killings. They said he issued a multi-page manifesto. Uh, complaining of his treatment in LAPD, and he made violent threats against LAPD officers. Uh, so they assign officers to protect those connected to the threats, which factors in here. And just a little bit later, there's an attempted boat theft in San Diego. He tried to steal a boat from somebody. So if you're trying to make a statement, I, I'm just, I know you can't answer, but it's just more of a, maybe a question to throw out there is, why the hell would you steal a boat um, if you're trying to stay in the area? And I guess, I mean, I guess he could have taken the boat right up the up the coast from uh, San Diego up to L.A. or Oceanside or wherever else. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's weird. Yeah, he tried to get that boat, and I think he had some, like, uh, some scuba diving equipment that he left on that boat as well. He uh, he actually got on the boat, and then um, I think he didn't untie the rope or something like that, and ended up getting caught in the propeller. <laughs> and uh, But, yeah. Fucking Navy guy, and he can't even steal a fucking boat. No wonder he got... <laughs> Jesus. You know, and folks might think, hey, no, we're... Well, we're saying that in a, in the most disrespectful way against this guy because after all this time, this tells you what kind of a guy he was. If he's in the Navy and he can't even figure out how to take a unmoor the boat, you know, untie the boat and, you know, get it out into the water. Jesus. So, but now, so we start on the third. We've got the shootings, right? So, because um, I just want to kind of keep things. Dorner leaves the Navy on the first. Two people are killed uh, on the on the third. Uh, Monica Kwan and her fiancé, Keith Lawrence. Um, the 6th, they announce him as a suspect. They put the case together. He tries to steal the boat on the 6th. So now now we go to the 7th, and um, there is uh, this is where these officers now are protecting people, and Dorner encounters them in the suburb of Corona, right? Yeah, so LAPD, Dorner has his targets who he's going to get revenge on. So LAPD uh, sends protection details you know, throughout Los Angeles County. I think there are some in Ventura County. Um, uh to set up at these uh, high-ranking officials' houses uh, associated with the LAPD. Well, it, it looks like the—so he shot at the officers, right? But the, they were they were actually very lucky because one of them got grazed in the head. I mean, you, you just think just an inch the other way, and that round's going through his head instead of past his head. Yeah, so they were uh, on their way to a protection detail in Corona, and they get flagged down at a gas station uh, by a tow truck driver who, uh, who saw Dorner's uh, uh, Nissan pickup truck and uh, flagged the officers down told them like hey that was uh dorner in that vehicle um they attempt to follow dorner and i think he took off um went on a freeway overpass stopped his uh truck and got out with his uh, ar and um fired about 30 rounds into uh their uh, patrol vehicle you know this guy is just so brazen in terms of what he's doing i'm just a, it's just a wonder well, first of all, it's a wonder more people didn't die because of what he did, because he just, he didn't care. I mean, this this guy was just out, he was taking on, and that's the thing too is, how did that change, when is the first time you heard about the Dorner case? Let's put a pin here before we go too much farther. When's the first time you heard about Dorner, Alex? Uh, it was probably uh, probably on the 6th when uh, I remember uh, the news and everything, um, when he was down and they thought he was in that uh, hotel down in San Diego. But it was it was it made national national news just with everything because he was sending I think he sent that uh, that challenge coin that he received from LAPD to like Anderson Cooper and stuff like that. So he shot that up, didn't he? Too. Yeah, yeah, had a bolt hole through it and stuff. So he was doing that kind of that kind of stuff. And anything with a former uh, you know uh, police officer, especially LAPD, they get a lot of uh, media attention. And what what were you doing on February sixth? Uh, I was I was off on maternity leave. My wife had uh, just given birth to our our first son, so I was at I was at home hanging out and uh, watching watching TV or something. So, did you think it was going to get to your area at all, or did you think ah it's, it's another news thing? They'll catch him pretty soon, and you know that's the end of it. Yeah, not initially. I just again figured it was uh, something happened down in there that area, and then uh, not till the seventh uh, when he uh, was in the city of Riverside. How far is Riverside from uh, where you were at? Um, so we our county borders uh, Riverside County. So I mean, it could be you know from our central station, which is over there, it, it could be you know ten fifteen minutes. 
So I mean, so this now what we're what I guess the point we're making is geographically this becomes starts becoming very close to home. He kills or he shoots uh, two police officers, kills one in Riverside, and now this is really getting close to home. It's not LAPD, which is you know farther what north and west from you guys. Yeah, so it, it would just be uh, yeah yeah northwest. Um, but yeah, so as soon as uh, the two Corona officers from LA uh, got shot. Um, so the problem with that was when they were doing the, that protection detail, they were in a, obviously a different city and radio communications uh, were an issue. So they can't directly contact, you know, the city of Corona's dispatch that's going to go through L.A. And I think they ended up using a cell phone uh, to call 911 and put that information out that Dorner just uh, engaged them and was uh, in that area. Well, communications, that's that's going to be a key issue, too. We'll talk about that later, too, because when you're in uh, Big Bear and up in the mountains and stuff, communications is always an issue, whether it's cell or radio, you know, or anything else. And obviously this thing was an issue, but um, it's – he the, and the officer who died is, is Michael Crane. He'd been on the force for 11 years. Uh, the other officer survived and recovered. But that's not where it stopped. Like I said, remember, this kind of sets the stage for something else, too. So everybody's getting nervous. Everybody's getting um, – Everybody's getting a- attacked by airplanes. Is that airplanes or is that a lawnmower? That is a street sweeper. <laughs> <laughs> I've got the airplanes. No wonder, no wonder you guys have such clean streets. Sorry. So here's the funny part, folks. Just sit you're listening to this. I'm just going to leave this in. So Alex has got his laptop. He has to sit in the vehicle because it's not his normal one he uses. So the the charger is, is back at the office. The charger he's got is made for the vehicle, not for the house. So... <laughs> He's got to run out, fire up his fuel-efficient H2 Hummer, which gets zero miles to the gallon. <laughs> I wish I still had that thing. Hey man, well, yeah, you environment. You, I thought you guys in California were environmentally friendly and conscious about uh, stuff. But. No, not in San Bernardino County. I think we're uh, the last uh, cowboy county left. So, what happened to Orange County? <laughs> I, I I don't make enough money to live there. So. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right. So now that the street sweeper has cleaned all the, the streets um, and you guys have a pristine-looking area, let's go back to that because, like I said, this this thing starts getting people – everybody's on edge now. You, I mean, it's like you start seeing things that maybe aren't there. And so tell us what happens in Torrance because there's a case of mistaken identity that happens. Yeah, I'm. so this is kind of what I, I saw on the news. So um, LAPD's – this is uh, several days later um, – while we're doing the manhunt in Big Bear, so they're on a protection detail on a uh, on a captain's house in the city of Torrance, um, and then there's two newspaper ladies driving down the street uh, early morning hours, and they believe that it's Dorner coming uh, to you know um, kill this. Uh, because the newspaper people sometimes they drive across the street, you know, to throw the papers and come back. You yeah. Know? Uh, so I uh, I don't know exactly what happened, but the LAPD end up firing a bunch of rounds into uh the newspaper vehicle or the newspaper lady's uh, vehicle and uh there's two occupants in there and i think one of them was uh like grazed in the back or something like that but just uh, did not look good and uh just with all this stuff going on especially after uh officer crane and uh, officer tachius were shot just was was not good yeah it says right here in the reporting uh this is from charlie beck actually i've met charlie beck a few times he was chief of the lapd um, LAPD officers assigned to protect someone who was under the most serious levels of threat saw a vehicle early in the morning that looked like Dorner's. Uh, Beck said he said the vehicle was moving down a street with its lights off. So moving down a street, its lights off. A lot of those newspaper folks will also cross the center line, you know, to throw papers. 
I mean, you don't want to say you can see how it happened, but you can see how it happened. And it's, it's, uh, I feel really bad for the people involved. Fortunately, it would, they were injured, not killed. You know, um, I'm sure that uh, the taxpayers, though, of California forked out some bucks uh, on that shooting. Oh, yeah. What would you, would you tell us, Alex, during the pre-call? It was something like $16 million or something? Yeah, they got, they got quite a bit of money. Wow. Yeah, wow. And it's just, it's one of those things, though, but this is what happens. Imagine how jumpy and how on edge everybody is because this is, this is not the type of threats cops were used to having. They weren't used to having them made to them directly, indiscriminately. You know, you could be sitting at a light like the officers from Riverside were and be shot up, you yeah. know? And and the, and those Riverside officers. So that bolo hadn't even um, gone out yet from uh, from the city of uh, or from the shooting in Corona. So uh, yeah, Officer Tachius pulls up to a red light. Dorner's uh, directly across from them in the intersection. Sees a marked patrol vehicle, runs a red light, goes through the intersection, and and pulls up next to them parallel and hangs his AR out the window and fires directly into the uh, driver's side window of that patrol vehicle. Boy, that takes a real man, doesn't it? Yeah. Piece of and, shit. And with that dash, with that dash camera video, um, Officer Tachius was shot several times in the in the shoulders and the legs. Um, so his foot came off the uh, the brake, and his vehicle rolled through the intersection on, on that. And a, a taxi cab driver that actually saw the whole thing happen ran out and uh, put his head in through the uh, driver window and put his uh, put the patrol vehicle uh, in park. And was able to uh, Officer Tachius told him to pick his uh, his radio microphone up off the dash and put it towards his mouth and uh, hold the button so he could uh, put out that he was uh, just shot. And he didn't know it was Dorner or anything like that. And then as the car's rolling through the uh, intersection, you can actually hear the um, the radio transmission that Dorner had just shot at two LAPD officers in the city of Corona. So it was very quick um, from the Corona uh, to the Riverside. So this is getting close to the point, right, when you get involved, because at some point um, they find his truck on fire in your county. Yeah, so he, uh, he shot Officer Crane, uh, killing Officer Crane, who left behind a, you know, a wife and two children, and then severely wounded Tachius, and that was in the, the early morning hours uh, of February 7th. So I remember I was watching the news, and I see, uh, you know, this is all over the news, the Riverside officers, and then uh, some of the guys I knew from my department were out there uh, helping out at the scene. My brother, Ryan, had just recently got promoted from our uh, our SED team uh, to sergeant, and he actually was stationed in Big Bear as a uh, patrol watch commander. So I called him uh, just to see what was going on. We talked to each other almost every day. Um, so I called him, and uh, he's kind of whispering on the phone, and he goes, hey, I think uh, we found Dorner's truck uh, up here in Big Bear. And I'm like, what the heck? And I'm, he's like, he's all, hey, I can't talk. I got to go. And he hangs up. I'm like, man, that's crazy. Nothing happens in Big Bear. Like, what the what the hell is Dorner uh, doing in Big Bear? Um, so what we later find out that uh, Dorner uh, shoots the two Riverside officers, uh, drives up to Big Bear, goes on a uh, like a forest service road, uh, ends up crashing his truck into a uh, like a tree uh, stump or a down tree, ends up breaking the axle on his vehicle and lights his uh, truck on fire. Uh, inside the truck were a couple ARs, uh, another uh, um, pistol, and some ammunition and, and camping gear. So he did that in the early uh, morning hours um, on Thursday, February 7th. And so no one really called the uh, vehicle fire in because the Forest Service was doing controlled burns on, like, the ridge just behind uh, that Forest Service road where 
uh, Dornard's truck was. So they just thought it was the Forest Service uh, doing controlled burns out there. And then uh, I think an employee of uh, Bear Mountain Ski Resort, which is right off that uh, mountain road, ended up finding uh, Dornard's vehicle and calling it in. What's the weather like at this time up there? It's February, so it's got to be kind of cold. But have you guys got snow yet, or what's the deal? Yeah, so there was a there was a little bit of snow. Uh, it wasn't currently snowing um, at during that day, but there was there was snow on the ground. Now you're sitting at home with your wife, your brand new son. At this point, how old is your son? Uh, I think he's two weeks. You're getting cabin fever, aren't you? Oh, big time. Yeah, I <laughs> I was ready to go back to work. I think I only planned on on, on taking three weeks off, anyways. Um, again, like it was, uh, it was our first son. So, you know, my parents are over there all the time and, uh, first, first, uh, grandkid, um, on my wife's side. So yeah, mother-in-law was staying over there every night and which was, which was good, but I was, I was missing my boys. <laughs> so you know, I, uh, yeah. it, it's funny you say that if people don't quite understand this, but my wife used to say my favorite day of the work week was Monday morning. Cause I got to go back to work for the weekend. <laughs> It just kind of goes along with this job. It's the culture. You want to get back out there. Yep. Absolutely. So when did shit get real that, hey, man, this is really going to affect us? Was that when, when you heard about the discovery, when you called your brother and you found out the truck was I Because mean, that's, that's not like being even in Riverside, even though it's 15, 20 minutes away. you got a huge county. I mean, this is now like, man, this is my backyard. Yeah, absolutely. And then especially knowing my brother's up there and they found his truck, uh, and I just immediately start worrying about him. I call my brother Matt, who was at that time was a, a detective on our SED team, and uh, you know he he told me him and his team are on their way up there that they just found Dorner's truck, or they think it's Dorner's truck because uh, it was kind of down in this ravine area, and they didn't want to make an approach. They didn't know if Dorner was waiting there to ambush him. That's why he lit it on fire. Was waiting for a you know law enforcement response or something like that. So it, it took some time for uh, to actually make the approach find the vehicle, and then confirm that it was uh, Dorner's truck. Well, let me ask you first of all, uh, in Big Bear, what were the biggest crimes that, that you guys were typically investigating? Were y'all doing murders and armed robberies and kidnappings and things like that? No, I mean, we had our, like, typical, like, you know, convenience store robberies and stuff like that, but it was it was mainly uh, just street-level drug stuff, um, a lot of uh, residential burglaries, just stuff like that. So a relatively quiet post to have. Yeah, and, Nothing too crazy. It's a really nice community, um, really, uh, uh, really nice area. Like I said, they have the two, you know, major ski resorts up there. It, it was a really, ni- really nice place to work. And now all of a sudden you got this cop killer up there that's looking to kill more cops. Yeah, absolutely. And then now both my brothers are up there. So I was, uh, again, I was, like I said, I was, uh, uh, you know, in that station detective position. Um, so I called uh, our detective sergeant uh he knew i was off obviously and asked him if i if he wanted me to come in which he said yes and i was going to come in anyways even if he said no um <laughs> so, so i called up i don't know most people think we're crazy for stuff like this but it's this is a major activity and you know your brother cops out there are in danger and you just want to get back in there and be a part of it you know is want to get in the game as crazy as that might sound, and I'll guarantee you Morgan's the exact same way. You just want to get back out there. You don't want to miss the action. Yeah, absolutely. And especially like, you know, not only my you know fellow deputies and stuff, but my actual brothers being up there and stuff. And like you said, it's, you know, my backyard. That's my station. Um, I was very proud to work that station, um, you know, did everything I could 
while that's I was just there. additional stress knowing your brothers are out there. You're, you're, you know, your biological your brothers. brothers. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, biological. Hey, and let's put this in context too, Alex. Murph was kind of hitting on it, but I want to put a fine point on it. In the in the entire time you were signed at Big Bear, had you guys had any homicides? No, not that I can remember that we did. So when when you say it was a safe kind of a quiet area, I mean you're talking about this is, like I said, you get this quality of life, but you guys hadn't dealt with a real huge major critical incident of. of you know, like uh, from from a criminal standpoint, until this kind of came along, like in the the three or four years that you were there, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, let me ask it a little bit differently. How do you prepare yourself for something when you've never been involved in something that big before? How do, how do you start preparing yourself mentally? Because you've been up there. Obviously, you're in shape, but it's like. Um, it's not like you're working in the, um, you know, the, the highest crime rate area of San Bernardino, San Bernardino City or Victorville uh, City or, you know, anything like that. The areas you're talking about, you're working in an area that would be like the equivalent of Mayberry RFD. How do you how do you get yourself geared up to get into this game? Yeah, with that, um, I mean, at, you know, I was, shoot, how old was I? Like 25, 26. So at that, you think you're invincible anyways. Um, you know, we're trained very well. Uh with our department we take that very serious um uh you know we get paid pretty well out here in california so we're expected um to perform you know to that standard uh and again like i i was pretty fairly new with this and it was it was something i've never seen before and i know like a lot of guys uh hadn't seen dealt with anything uh to this magnitude it was you know the largest manhunt in in southern california history so walk us through your next set of actions then so um how does your wife take this? Because, I mean, you know, most cops' wives are like, okay, just, you know, don't get your ass shot. You know, I'll see you at home later. You know, just be safe. How did your wife react to this when you just said, hey, honey, week early, but I'm heading out of the house. We got this going on. Was she worried? Was she concerned? Or was she more like, yeah, it's just another day at the office for you? Yeah, I don't remember her being too too concerned or worried about it. I just remember I was so, so focused on, you know, shaving, shaving my little – beard that I had going on for the past two weeks off and, uh, <laughs> your and, dad beard. Yeah. So yeah. And I called my uh, partner, uh, King. He was actually on vacation at the time and he was down at uh, Newport beach, uh, with his wife and kids. So I called him. He's like, Hey, uh, I'm on my way to your house. My wife, he lived in big bear. He's like, my wife's going to drop me off at your house so we can go, go into work together. And then, um, they're going to, you know, go back to the beach and continue out their vacation. Cause it's kind of, kind of that same attitude, like, all right, cool. Like be safe. But you know, we're not giving up our vacation <laughs> for this right. guy and stuff like that. So, so this is February seventh is when is when this starts for you, then, right? Yes. So let let's walk through the rest of the day of February seventh. What happens on the seventh? So on the seventh, uh, I get there. We have a command post set up um, at Bear Mountain Ski Resort. They have a uh, like a nine hole golf course, which is closed during uh, the uh, the winter. So we set up our command post in the clubhouse of the golf course. Um, and we do have a fairly large department, so we did keep everything in-house, and we had all our, uh, our specialized divisions and extra p- patrol bodies uh, up there. Um, and How many help- people at, at the height of this would you say that you had? Oh, gee, I mean, it's in the hundreds probably uh, with extra patrol. Uh, our, you know, our four SVD teams up there, uh, our narcotics divisions, our gang divisions uh, from each station, all our uh, extra bodies. So it, at, at the station level, we'll have our, uh, you know, our, our station level gang teams, uh, you know, or your school resource officers, um, or, you know, any other extra positions that... Anybody who's not pulling a shift and working the road and covering a beat is going to be pulled out and heading up there. Absolutely. Yep. 
All right. So, uh, so you guys are basically, you're getting geared up. So how do you guys coordinate your activities? I mean, what, I mean, there's something else too, though, I want you to tell people about too, because you had a captain that was old school and you were, you weren't just an acting detective. He considered you a detective. So even though it's cold, even though it's snowy, even though it sucks, how were you expected to dress? Oh yeah. He, uh, he was a homicide detective for a really long time, went back to homicide as a sergeant. So his, his detectives were, uh, in, in suits, uh, shirt and a tie. And how well did that work for you? It's like, you weren't that rich to begin with. So you didn't have, you couldn't have had that many suits. You know, I had, I had a couple that I, I had, uh, you know, getting ready for this position. So, um, I was okay, but yeah, I think, uh, after it was okay on Thursday and Friday and Saturday morning, it started snowing. Um, so I ran out of, I ran out of suits, I think on day five or shirt and ties. And I was kind of fed up with, uh, with, you know, I, my leather dress shoes were all ruined from us walking around in the snow and stuff like that. While the SWAT guys and the other people, they've got the cold weather gear and they're nice and comfy and their boots and everything. And you guys oh, are yeah. traipsing around like a bunch of what we used to call rimps, rear echelon motherfuckers, <laughs> just coming out in your patent leather shoes going, we got it, boys. It's yeah. all good. Yeah. yeah, We're here for the photo op. <laughs> yeah. That's I, right. Yeah. I, those SWAT guys, man, they, uh, they had a little rough out there. They're, they were out there hiking in the snow and, um, it, it was pretty bad. I saw some of the pictures of them with the balaclavas on, you know, and the full face covering. And did they just look like snow bunnies? You know, yeah. just it was. So, but let's but let's but let's stay on the timeline though, because the seventh, really, you guys are just getting geared up. You get out there. Does much happen on the seventh other than you guys get um, you're getting intel and you're trying to coordinate your searches? Or are there any major events that happen on the seventh? No, there's really no major events really at all. Just. Uh, we were following up uh, some leads and stuff like that, and it took a long time to get that truck out of there. They had to uh, hook it up to a chain, hook it up to our uh, our armored uh, rescue vehicle, and drag it out. And uh, uh, they ended up confirming it was uh, Thorner's truck on the hidden VIN because it was so badly, uh, uh, so it was, it was burnt. All yeah, the way man, down. just looking at the picture here, man. He, you know, it it is. It's torched. I mean, I've worked arsons and vehicle fires and at bad accidents and stuff. And sometimes you do, you got to go find that VIN that's stamped onto the frame or whatever else just to identify the vehicle. Cause that, that fuel and they do when the tires catch on that rubber tires, they burn forever. Yeah. I, and just black smoke. Yeah, we had to call one of the highway patrol guys over there to find the hidden VIN on it for us. So just to confirm that it was his, his vehicle. So troopers do have, uh, you know, they do come in we handy occasionally, use. right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Love you, troopers. Just, just remember, I'm gonna get I'm gonna get more speeding tickets when I leave here, aren't I? Oh, dude, I'm, I already call my friends at the Florida Highway Patrol. You will not be able to move without contributing to the general fund of the great state of Florida that you left me for, you traitorous bastard. Third episode in a row, we've had to talk about this. So I don't know if you knew this, Alex. Murph decided he's leaving me up here in Loudoun County. Moved to Florida. And what does he do? He moves to Florida. He's sick the entire time. Yeah. He can't. Oh, I love Florida. Oh, and he left a lung on the floor when we were recording the intro for our last episode. Yeah. Well, I'm going to get in time here in time for COVID and hurricane season. You know, we're doing good. You made it. So, so let, let's talk. Let's go back to that. So let's talk. So the seventh, not much happens. You guys get geared up. Um, what, what about the eighth? Going into the eighth, because I mean, the weather's going to start deteriorating, right? Things start getting a little dicey. Yeah, so we're doing that. We're doing, uh, like, we were setting up uh, grid searches, searching cabins, because there are so many uh, vacation cabins up there. They were going up there looking for any signs of fourth century. If there was anything, uh, you know, whether it was a, um, 
an overtime team, a patrol team they were contacting our, uh, our specialized enforcement division. They would go up with armor uh, and check the house and do that. Hey players, hopefully you enjoyed part one of Alex Collins and the shootout with ex-LAPD cop Christopher Dorner. There is a lot of stuff still to come. Just go to our webpage, gameofcrimespodcast.com. See all the pictures we've loaded up. I tell you, it shows you everything from the shootout, what he looked like as a young deputy, the day of the shooting, dressed as a detective, all the way up through his recovery and what he's doing now, living his dream, which is being part of the Special Enforcement Division, the SWAT team for San Bernardino County Sheriff's Office. Also, make sure you go visit us on the interwebs, the social media, at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast, at Facebook and the Instagram. But more importantly, make sure you also go visit us at patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We have a ton of terrific content there. We're uploading new stuff every day. We have over 40 episodes for things for you to consume and enjoy. So remember, tell one, share one, give everybody the gift of Game of Crimes this holiday season. Hey, guys, everybody stay tuned. We'll see you on Thursday for part two of Alex Collins and the shootout with ex-LAPD cop Christopher Dorner. worked hard for what you have your money your assets your 401k and home isn't it all worth protecting nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft lifelock ultimate plus helps protect your finances with up to three million dollars in reimbursement lifelock alerts you to identity threats you might miss and if your identity is stolen your dedicated u.s-based restoration specialist will work to fix it let lifelock help protect what you've worked so hard for save 25 percent off your first year on lifelock ultimate plus at lifelock.com aware terms apply